2: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 470th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, THR's Executive Editor of Awards, and my guests today are two legendary musicians who co-founded and for nearly 50 years, accepting a 17-year hiatus from 1982 through 1999, have been the backbone of the tremendously groundbreaking and influential punk new wave band Blondie, while also co-writing most of the songs for which the group is known lead singer Debbie Harry, and guitarist Chris Stein. Blondie has been described by Esquire as a pillar of punk rock's birth and the biggest act to emerge from first-wave punk, by Rolling Stone as the band that shattered the new-wave stigma of non-commercialism and CBGB's greatest success story, and by The Guardian as one of the most influential bands of the past century. While the Los Angeles Times called it one of the most successful and trend-setting bands of all time, and noted that, alone among the CBGB-born bands, it had hits. Indeed, four of Blondie's tunes hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, two of them Disco, Heart of Glass, and Call Me, one Reggae, The Tide is High, and one Hip-Hop Rap, Rapture. And the band has sold upwards of 40 million records, making it, in the estimation of the New York Times, the punk era's best-selling group with a sound, attitude, look, and aesthetic that proved inspirational to generations of artists across a spectrum of genres. Though Blondie has somehow only received two Grammy nominations over the years for Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal for Call Me in 1981 and Best Video of the Year for Eat to the Beat in 1982, its work has certainly withstood the test of time. Indeed, it claimed two spots on Rolling Stone's 2020 list of the greatest albums of all time, number 146 for Parallel Lines and number 401 for Blondie, and two spots on Rolling Stone's 2021 list of the greatest songs of all time, number 138 for Heart of Glass and number 414 for Dreaming. Meanwhile, in 2015, Heart of Glass was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame as a recording of qualitative or historical significance. And in 2006, the band itself was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Harry, in particular, is now seen as a trailblazer. With what the New York Times has described as her haunted, haunting voice, and what Vanity Fair has called the face that became the flashy hood ornament for New Wave Rock in the late 70s, she changed the game. Playboy has argued that her innovations made the Bangles and Cyndi Lauper and Madonna and even Tina Turner commercial propositions – the Hollywood Reporter has suggested that she paved the way for everyone from Lady Gaga and Katy Perry to No Doubt and indie popsters, and MTV has asserted that with her iconic snarl, she took 60s pop music's rendering of Feminine Desire and gave it punk's teeth. Before Madonna writhed sexually around on video, before Cyndi Lauper led a conga line of girls into empowerment, before Pat Benatar asked listeners to hit her with their best shot, Debbie Harry was paving the way for those women and for future stars whose wit and sarcasm have a place in mainstream music. Over the course of our conversation, Harry, who is now 77, and Stein, who's now 72, reflected on the fateful way in which they came together, the creation of Blondie's biggest hits, and the fact that some 40 years after Blondie broke up, a development that the Los Angeles Times' legendary music critic Robert Hilburn called one of the most dramatic pop disappearances since John Lennon's house husband period. The band is not only still making music together, but is also being celebrated with an incredible new super deluxe collector's edition box set called Blondie Against the Odds 1974-1982, to 1982, which chronicles the band's initial eight-year run with all six of its studio albums from that era, remastered from the original analog tapes and cut at Abbey Road Studios, 36 previously unissued recordings, hundreds of pages of liner notes, dozens of previously unpublished photos, an illustrated discography, and much more. It is currently nominated for the Best Historical Album Grammy that will be presented on February 5th, 2023. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Debbie and Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the Hollywood Reporters Podcast. It's an honor to speak with you i'm such a fan and uh congratulations on this new box set which is incredible i've i've never seen anything like it the i think it weighs more than most people i i i know i mean what are you guys well we're going to come actually we'll come to that chronologically if if that's alright with you but to begin with on this podcast we always just kind of go chronologically so can i ask you each starting with debbie uh where were you Born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: I was born in uh, Florida, Miami, Florida, and I grew up in outside of Patterson, New Jersey. And my dad was a salesman, and my mother was a housewife for the most part, and then occasionally she did
1: uh, clerical work.
2: Thank you. And Chris? Uh, I was
1: born in Manhattan in Harlem Hospital, which is... At the time, was called Sloan Hospital for Women, and I grew up in Brooklyn. And my parents were Reds. My mom was an artist, and my dad was a frustrated writer, but he was actually a salesman. All
2: right. <laughs> well, prepping for for this, I've I've learned uh, you know just so many interesting things about you and Chris. I want to ask about your childhood first, because I see that on the one hand, you're expelled from. High school, but on the other hand, by seventeen you're opening for the Velvet Underground. So what was going on Um, there? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
1: Well, no, I mean, so the the fucking dean in I guess it was 1965 or so rounded up the few of us who had long hair at the time, and this is in Brooklyn at Midwood High School, uh, where Woody Allen was a alumni actually, (laughs) and a bunch of sports people that I don't know. And the dean rounded us up and said, listen, you guys have to get haircuts because you're going to be crossing the street and your hair is going to blow in front of your eyes and you're going to get hit by a car. <laughs> and he, he really fucking said that. But at this, so so I was kicked out of... I was really kind of happy to leave. I was, you know, it was liberating because I hated high school. And But at the time, it was also a period where there was a lot of... Uh, civil rights things going forward, people were, you know, there were a lot of uh, uh, legal actions about people getting thrown out for having long hair. So the school kind of tried to get in front of it. And they called me up and somebody even spoke to me and not my mom. And somebody, somebody from the school said, um, you can come back. You want to take Jim? That was that, <laughs> that was the, the You know, that was, Fair enough. Fair enough incentive. But I was happy to get out, and my mom found a really cheap private school in Manhattan, so I finished
2: there. But I mean, to be at seventeen, part of a band that's opening for the Velvet Underground must have been Well,
1: that was just me. That was me and my friends. I I, a guy I grew up with who I've known for fifty years, Joey Freeman was working for Andy. He is that's another whole long story. I have a memoir coming out.
2: I'm excited I saw that. I'm very excited. Next year,
1: hopefully. So all this stuff will be in there. But this guy I knew for a really long time, worked for the factory, worked for Andy very early on, and he just showed up at my place in Brooklyn. We were always jamming in the basement and stuff, being my buddies. And he showed up and he said, listen, the um, opening act for the Velvets didn't show up. Do you guys want to do it? So, you know, of course we want to do it because we all were big fans of the Velvets, 1967. We went uptown to this place called the gymnasium where there's actually recordings of them because they were in there for months. They were just like, you know, rehearsing and, uh, you know, what what do you call it? Residency there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we did the gig with them. and It was just really great. It was memorable. Part of my music history. Yeah. Maureen Maureen Tucker let us put her bass drum up right side up, because she used to play it like a timpani, you know.
2: <laughs> well, very cool. And and Debbie, in your memoir, which is great and came out, I don't know, just a few years ago, uh, you talk about how being adopted, I think, may have shaped your personality in a way and and your sort of sense of desire to discover more about yourself. So after junior college, this idea of going into Manhattan, what were you? What was, what was the way that was going to go in your mind at the time? What did you think was going to happen when you got there?
0: I didn't know. I, I just sort of uh, had always been very attracted to the arts and uh, not necessarily uh, as a performer, but um, I did want to, you know, I thought I could be a painter perhaps. So and I always tended to hang out with, you know, kids from the art class and from, you know, music yeah. Music wasn't such a great thing at, at my school. Um, but I did, uh, I did do a little, <laughs> a little singing group with a couple of, uh, couple of girls in her basement. And, uh, that was fun. That was, you know, I mean, it was very early on. We were quite, quite young, but, um, my family my parents were you know terribly afraid of um new york and the art world and the crazy people and so you know they they really did not really encourage me
2: well and and i guess not that long after you got to the city there's that initial group wind of the wind in the willows right a sort of folk group and then there's a few years gap before the stilettos. And I wanted to ask what was going on for you in that time. And also what were you listening to? Because I think it may have sort of shaped your interests, right?
0: Well, you know, I dropped out of the wind in the willows. Uh, it was a sort of a very awkward situation. My, uh, my best friend from high school, well, her husband, you know, formed the group and I was basically a backup singer and it, it just became very, uh, very awkward and uncomfortable and we did two albums the second album never got released uh so
1: wait why why, why are we not looking for the second album where the fuck is that right well now <laughs> exactly. this is very funny because the man who was the uh owned
0: the studio where we recorded uh was the engineer and sort of semi co-producer with Artie kornfeld just died recently. His name was Brooks Arthur. And he was a terrific guy. He was a really wonderful person. So um, I don't know. Maybe those those things were destroyed. Who knows?
2: But you were in those years in between, I guess, uh, the two initial groups. You're working all kinds of just a variety of jobs, right? And some of them maybe you can... I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I see, you know, a beautician, a secretary for the BBC, uh, at the Playboy club, a a, a waitress, I guess, but just all this stuff's going on, but how were you introduced to the kind of music that you guys t- collectively would, would later specialize in?
0: I think just from, uh, you know, popular radio, there was a lot of really good radio and, uh, you know, hanging out and going to see groups. And then, um, I don't know, it, it was kind of coincidental that, you know, Chris and I, I, I don't know, maybe it was indicative of the times, but um, we both seemed to gra- gra- you know, uh, gravitate to the same kinds of music and the same kinds of scenes.
1: Well, I, the, the, um, do-
0: the dolls were central to a lot of this stuff. Oh, I'm talking much earlier. Well, yeah, but. The dolls were very central to
1: both of us. I went to Slugs once or twice, you know.
2: Wow. And and the dolls, though, so that would have been, when you're discovering them, would have been in those years sort of between Win in the Willows and Stilettos, right? Or right around then, right?
0: Well, I think actually the Dolls were much later. The Dolls were in the seventy, and what I yeah. sort of was referring oh, okay. to was at the end of the 60s. So
1: well, yeah, um, the 60s was, 60s was transformative for everybody. We were, we were all our boomers, and we we're all involved yeah. with all that bullshit. Right. So.
2: <laughs> well, and you've both said, I I think separately, and and maybe even after you got together, that for you the ultimate was, what, the Beatles and Bowie, right? That was sort of the top of the... The mountain,
1: you know, really—it was of more for the stones, stones, yeah. Stones, stones. and he- stones, okay. stones and Hendrix. I uh, saw, a, I saw Janice and Big Brother, the the Fillmore East at their first New York gig, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I was in lots of weird places,
2: connecting up. Right, well, Debbie. So once you join the Stilettos and you guys start performing the basically a, a girl group i guess the reason that chris happened to be at one of your first shows was chris at that point was you were there primarily photographing stuff or no. just there as a
1: no i just went cuz i knew you know it was all very incestuous and uh we people in the group had eric amerson and Common, Those guys never recorded the Magic Tramps. They got a shout out on that weird vinyl show, which was bad. I'm sorry to say, Marty, I'm sorry. The show sucked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people knew people. It wasn't a very big scene. I was actually, I went to the very first Stiletto show. Wow. And I thought Debbie was really striking, and that was it. And we're coming up to our fiftieth anniversary in September of next year.
2: Can you believe that? So- <laughs> unbelievable? Yeah. <laughs> well, so Debbie, just since that was the night where obviously your lives both changed, what do do you, you remember? Chris obviously remembers seeing you from the audience. Do you remember w- noticing Chris?
0: Yes, absolutely.
2: And it was while you were while you were singing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it was that very same night that you guys. Was it just initially romantic or was initially about performing no, or together? We didn't,
1: we didn't deal with each other the first then. Um, I was I was friends with Elda, who was one of the girls in the band. She has was an ex of Eric, who I just mentioned. Uh, then I found out they were looking for musicians. So I went and signed up
2: to be a part of the slettos for, for a while.
1: Yeah. yeah, do What do we do? A year, year and a
2: half, something like that. Yeah. So, Debbie, why? What was the impetus to for you guys to decide? You know what? Let's go off on our own. And initially, I know pe- the, the fun fact for for our listeners: it wasn't immediately Blondie, right? Initially, it's Angel and the Snake, I think. And then, but just what the very idea that you two would splinter off and start something of your own? What brought that about?
0: Well, you know, it, it's very difficult to keep a band together, keep a group of people um, you know, collaborating and you know there's all all these uh, sensitivities and egos and things. Um, but in a, in a nutshell, uh, I think we wanted to just be more focused and uh you know, do, you know, do rock music and and even, you know, we were struggling at the time even then to um you know, create songs, make our own music. And, uh, so I I think that, um, Elda may she rest in peace decided to take some steps in, uh, in the business world and, and management sort of without including any of us. And, um, you know, that it just sort of blew everything apart for me. I, uh, I I wouldn't, I I just felt uncomfortable with that. And uh, along with the music, you know, wanting to make, just do rock. And at the time, the stilettos was was sort of a cabaret, uh, girl group, R&B and blues kind of thing. And um, so, you know, we're just leaning in another direction.
2: And this this idea, you know, now everybody looks back and I think uses the word of of what, you know, that Blondie became punk. But was that even a word that was in the vocabulary at the time? Was that something that you guys were uh, aspiring to do or or what did you call yourselves?
1: Um, Not anything really at that point. Sleazy, (laughs) maybe Uh, I the punk name probably didn't show up till you know, right around the time of Holstrom and Leg starting the magazine, just yeah. a little bit, a little before that, where I just remember when we started seeing the posters that said punk is coming for the magazine. We all thought, wow, this is the worst name for a band <laughs> ever, but it, t- it turned out to be the magazine. So that, that, that kind of worked.
2: And, and I've heard, Debbie, you basically initially and maybe even beyond initially thought punk was sort of more in reference to the fashion. Like it was sort of a, it was this, the visual, the optics as much as the sound for, for, to you, right?
0: Well, I, I don't know if we uh, ever really thought of it as the punk scene until, you know, it, it was actually labeled, labeled that in the press. Um, I I don't think any of us, because there were so many uh, diverse sounds that were coming out of that, uh, scene, you know, there, it was a really wide variety of, of different styles. And, uh, so we were, uh, I think we were sort of searching and, and combining and, and, and it wasn't until we had, um, you know, a real sort of firm, set of musicians that, you know, it, it sort of fell together because yeah. of that blend, you know,
1: I mean it, it, it didn't the, the you know the real punk scene didn't start maybe even till the late 70s early 80s for me like with you know Black Flag and the Cro-Mags and all those guys you know who were very very focused in their stylistic uh, approach
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was watching uh Wendy o. Williams the other day and uh I mean they they were terrific I'm really sorry that that didn't go further.
2: And I guess the from from your point of view, the people who or the bands that were doing what would come to be called punk that you were aware of when Blondie was taking off, would it have been what? So aside from the Dolls, the, the, were you aware of like the Sex Pistols and all of these other? Yeah, kinds of course, of, yeah, yes.
1: yeah, yeah. No, as soon as they popped up, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> we we you know people don't. We just lost Wilco Johnson. Uh, And people don't realize that the Dr. Feelgoods were an influence on the early New York scene that we were all aware of those guys before any of us had recorded. It's very
0: funny how things went back and forth because, you know, the dolls went to the UK and they were they were a huge influence. And then, you know, um, a little bit later on, then the pistols happened and, you know, sort of flopped back and forth. Thank goodness Johnny Thunders, you know, stayed around for a while.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Ma- you know, Malcolm was trying to uh, make a melange of the Dolls and the Ramones and all the, you know, and just get do all that stuff in
2: his uh, work with the Pistols. So, I I know there. This is probably obvious, but just for the record, how do we get the name? Blondie, and also, um, if you wouldn't mind, was there ever any discussion, just as a, as a weird curiosity, I've got to ask, w- w- that the guys might also go... Blonde oh, at the yeah
1: yeah <laughs> Debbie suggests that has been suggesting that regularly for the last fifty years. Yes, all the guys blood tie. I did once when my yeah. my, when my hair started turning gray. I actually bleached the back. I I did go with it briefly. You should but, go where uh, go
2: to Debbie's stylist or whoever. <laughs> but Debbie, it was literally just one day. You you get a cat call and that struck you as a good idea or yeah.
0: Yeah, seemed pretty, pretty obvious and straightforward. And uh, I, I think one of the things that I, I sort of gravitated to is the idea that uh, um, it was very recognizable and people's uh, people's heads, you know, sort of existed already. And it wasn't like, what, what was that? <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> right. oh, yeah, Lonnie, right. So, you know, sort of made sense.
2: Is this something, though, that later caused some acrimony within the group because there's for some outsiders or whatever, the assumption was that you are Blondie, that not the, that the band is, you know, they confuse an individual for the band. Was that something that became a challenge later on?
0: It was a challenge at first, but you know,
1: fans all knew what was going on.
0: It wasn't expedient, you know, to get stuck there. You know I mean? That was sort of a, a publicity thing almost, uh, you know,
2: Right. Right. You once said in an interview, Debbie, like, quote, we came along during this big guitar period when everyone sat around and just listened. Part of our goal was to get them dancing again. Close quote. Was that truly a a conscious thing as you guys are? uh, Because I and I and I just want to also add to this question. And Chris, please jump in when when you feel like it. But was it always from the start, Chris, you're writing music and then, Debbie, you come in with the lyrics? No,
1: there were, well. I, I we integrated on a lot of stuff. Some stuff would be done simultaneously. You know, where I, we, we sat down together on a bunch of stuff. But generally, I would make tapes and then give it to her, and um, you know, she would put stuff on top of the melody lines or and embellish them.
0: One of the things that uh, I remember pretty clearly is even from the stilettos, we were working with a, a director who uh, worked with Main Man and um, Dave, uh, Tony Ingrasia, And he was always, you know, saying, "Got got to get people dancing. You know, he's got to make them, you know, get them dancing. And, you know, that was such a, you know, a good you know everybody really likes dancing and but the thing is in in New York clubs, you know there usually was not a dance floor, and um a lot of places um didn't have cabaret licenses, so it you know was totally totally forbidden really
1: well, when we all started off there was there was no rock dance as such, yeah. and the disc, disco didn't really what well, took a while to happen also.
2: Well, it's interesting also to me, though, that, you know, Debbie, you've said uh, that like a lot of actors, actually, you were were and maybe still are uh, actually extremely shy. And so the idea, though, of being a public performer might seem like a crazy thing for somebody like that to do. But the way that a lot of actors justify it is they say, well, I'm playing a character. It's not me. And I wonder to what extent that was true of you as well, where, you know, you don't seem very shy when you're up front and, you know, singing and dancing and doing what, what you were doing. How did, was there a a person that you had in mind who you were playing, who was different from yourself?
0: No, but I I think that um, David Bowie has also said this uh, about, you know, discovering his character and however you want to describe that it is. It is a process, you know, of discovery, and and um, you know, you you're creating a, a character that you're within, and and um, you know, it just it, it makes performance in this particular you know genre um, possible for for many people. I, I don't think that it's extremely unique. I I just think it's, um, you know it's part of, you know, standing in front of a rock band. It's not always, you know, you're not born that way. You know, you just sort of just, you know, take this, this step, you inch into it. You know, I don't know. There's probably some people, um, I don't know. You should talk to Iggy because
1: I mean, he certainly has a strong persona. Yeah. Iggy, Iggy probably would be more of an extrovert, but people, you know, me and Debbie and Joey Ramone certainly was a very introverted guy, and watching him come out and become this, you know, (laughs) big big rock animal was a great experience.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Debbie, the, the line, though, that I did see, I think it was in your memoir, that really was interesting, was, quote, I used to dress as a little boy a lot in Blondie, but in a way that sort of looked cute, you know? And then other times I was flashing my whatever. But I guess... Would somebody who knew you as a kid and then didn't see you again until you were, you know, breaking out in Blondie, could they reconcile that this is the same person?
0: Well, I I don't know. You know, I I guess it would depend on how observer, you know, how much they observed when when we
2: were kids. Um, Sure.
0: Yeah. Can't can't tell about that.
2: Sure. Chris, why do you think it was that with those first two albums in particular, you guys blew up much more outside of the U.S. than in the U.S.? What was it about those albums that that would explain that?
1: Uh, Just a lot of it came out of the U.K. because, you know, the U.K. had that national music press, which the America didn't have uh, and it had top of the pops. So that was a whole everybody in the country would be reached similarly in Australia. You had, you know, Countdown, Molly, Meldrum, all allegedly played in the flesh by mistake. I always thought that was a great story, but I don't think he played it by mistake. I think he knew <laughs> what he was doing. Uh, and I think it just all went from there. You know, the I don't know how much the ripple effect of having the, a number one in Australia affected the rest of the world, but certainly the hits we had, you know, Denis knee coming out of the u k
2: was uh a big deal in europe and, and was there something though that you guys were consciously aware that there was more that you could or should be doing, which is why you then go to Mike Chapman for the third album or what what what, what you know
1: we got hooked up the record company suggested Chapman, I think it came from Terry Ellis. But uh, and um, it just worked out great. You know, when he we were I'm still eternally grateful and consider myself really lucky to have had those experiences with him.
2: Although it wasn't always fun. Right, Debbie, you've called him a, a dictator. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I don't know. Maybe that's a bit harsh, but
1: uh, <laughs> I, I compare him to Kubrick. You know, I'm, I was doing a lot, at least for Parallel Lines. There were a lot of, a lot of takes, but uh, I think people had fun with Stanley in spite of doing 40 takes of a scene, you right.
2: know, whatever. <laughs> um, can I ask you just this sort of little couple of little case studies, just about a few of these songs that everybody knows and loves of your guys and just maybe what the story is behind them? Uh, and these are all, of course, part of that first eight years that are featured in this box set and and there's all kinds of stuff additionally written and photos uh, to accompany it but i mean can we with with parallel lines since 1978 one way or another debbie like people are singing and dancing to this they, it actually has some pretty dark origins right
0: well you know, I, I think that you know, I I always enjoyed things that had more than one level of meaning, and uh, one way or another, I think really applies to all of our lives, you know, and our our way of survival, and you know, the you have to look at life like that, or otherwise you just sort of get you know stuck, and uh, so one way or another, and and uh, I guess you know people. Everybody seemed to understand it. There was no real problem understanding.
2: Maybe like most of these, I don't know, but it's it's essentially a autobiographical in, in, on one level in the sense of just a creep not leaving you alone.
0: Ah, yes, you know, uh, I think that um, then at that point, I don't know if there was a name for um, stalker stalkers. You know, I don't know if stalking was such a such a popular sport. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, everybody was doing it back then. It was. Less uh, exclusive for possibly, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, part of that whole thing of just, you know, getting on, you know, getting on with it. And yeah. uh, it, it, I think it applies to, as I said, everyone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. OK, we got to I got to ask about what I think was, I believe, your biggest Head on the charts, and certainly, you know, it's on all Rolling Stones' greatest song, 500 greatest songs of all time, and all that. uh, Heart of Glass. Did you know from the outset when you put that out, this is one we really? Um, no, you don't think no. you didn't think, Chris?
1: No, the only one, I, the only song we recorded that I was a hundred percent sure was going to be a big hit was "Tied as High," but that's later. <laughs> but "Heart of Glass," we, it was you know floating around for a long time in different incarnations.
2: Well, the box set does it. One of the amazing things about this is that it shows the evolution over, I think, like five years from the disco song to once I had a love to heart of glass. And um, I guess, Debbie, you you've said that people actually gave you guys crap for theoretically, at least in their view, going disco, right. That this was selling out in some way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there was a big thing about selling out at that time. I don't know. I think uh, nowadays, People are happy to be selling out. They're happy to be selling anything. <laughs> right. and, uh, I, I
1: always so. say, I always say selling out implies that you got paid. Yeah, right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, and also I don't know how, maybe it was too early for people to realize this, but you guys, I don't know how they could really pin you down to any genre. If you just look at your number one hits, they're all so different. So anyway, uh, which leads, I guess, to one that wasn't on an album, but was just a, a single for a film, uh, which I wonder if that's a different experience, uh, you know, where, how that came about if you're specifically writing, knowing a storyline or whatever, but, but call me from, for American jiggle. What, what, they just reached out to you and said, Hey, can you provide us with a song or how does that come about?
0: Well, I don't really know if they, uh, a- approached a lot of different people, but, uh, we got the word that, you know, um, Giorgio Moroder and Paul Schrader,
1: you know. Well, isn't that the one that allegedly Stevie Nicks was asked about, or is that something else?
0: I don't know. I
1: don't don't know know. either. I can't remember. I mean, that's just, you know, rumor out there. Yeah, I mean,
0: I I think that these things float around a little bit, and then finally they fall into place. And, and, I mean, that certainly is true for a lot of the things that happened to us. Um, We floated around and then fell into place, and, and this song in particular, you know, Giorgio had another lyric for it, and uh, possibly a little bit of a different sound. And uh, you know, we evolved with it. You know.
2: Yeah, I guess in this case, you're writing it essentially from the perspective of the right, the male prostitute, that Richard Gears play. Is that is it fun or challenging when you're when you're writing from like this is not in any way. As far as I can tell, autobiographical, unlike a lot of these others. So, how do you, how do you then? Is it, is it essentially like taking on a, a character figure? You know, writing, like how does, is that process different? No,
0: it's just really more about the visuals of the film. And uh, a slight, slight bit about the character, and uh, not really about the plot line at all. I mean, there's no mention of a murder or going to jail or anything like that. And you know, about his, uh, you know, seducing, you know, women. And you mentioning a lot about seduction. It was, you know, about desire and about the the colors in the film, which were. Related to Giorgio Armani, who was yet at that point to be discovered. So, um, no, it 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 was a sort of a. Mm. And he was, he was on the phone a lot.
2: Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right.
0: He was a he was a call girl. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Guy. Right. Yeah. Right.
2: Came out was also your fourth album, and Chris, I wonder. You've said I think that by that point there were there were kind of tensions already within the band beginning to emerge. Obviously, the music is still incredible. That's the album with with Dreaming, with Atomic, um, one of these albums that will be part of this set. But I just wonder what do you attri- to what do you attribute the beginning of kinds of those problems?
1: Oh, that was always going on. Where everybody is somewhat of an egomaniac, including myself. And there was always a lot of contention about, you know, who did what and whose material was being used, et cetera, et cetera. Luckily, I was hooked up with Debbie, so I had extra points in the thing. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what it was like being, for the other guys, being outside of the, you know, Chris and Debbie bubble, as they say. But uh, this stuff, you know, it's Mm -hmm. ongoing, and band's, hassle with each other. It's part yeah. of the process. T- the tension is creative. The thing about bands
0: is that, you know, uh, unlike, you know, film where you you, you have a uh, a group of yeah. people that are, you know, being directed, the band is the free for all. You know, there's no real director except yourselves. So, you know, sometimes it's a pitched battle and sometimes it's not. It's,
1: um, I, I always say it's kind of like, it's kind of like the UK, you know, it's like a democratic monarchy, you know, you <laughs> have to have somebody, somebody's got to be up there calling your shots to a certain extent, you know?
2: Right.
0: Yeah. Well, we had many outside, uh, we had a lot of complications in, and that involved uh, management and uh, record labels. Yeah. Every,
1: every fucking thing. I mean, it was just, yeah. just you know,
0: we were idiots.
2: Uh, well, I'm not going to label it, but I will say I've read that, Debbie, you guys, you've said that it was really a matter of getting yourself signed, uh, basically locked into a, a deal that you were unable to get out of where, what is it, like three albums a year, which is just unsustainable. Yeah, and, uh, three albums a year. And then if you're, you know, no matter how many hits you guys had, it's always feeling pressure, right? yeah.
0: Well, I think the industry has really, uh, you know, become more sophisticated and, and in some ways more reali- more realistic. And um, so we've all benefited from that. But um, I think even artists long before us, you know, like the R&B artists, uh, were treated horribly and uh, many of them never got
2: paid. Well, that kind of leads perfectly to the segue for what I wanted to ask you about with the, with the fifth album, Auto American 1980, what inspired you to be as experimental with that in a way as you were, where you've got, you mentioned the tide is high, which is reggae inspired. You've got Rapture, which is rap inspired. Like how this is quite different than what other popular groups were doing at that time. Why, what, why take a chance when things are working so well with what you were doing to now branch out like that?
1: It just was an evolution. It was just, you know, I mean, the people we really admired, you know, Bowie and The Stones, whatever, those guys were always turning over and reinventing themselves. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that album, the American album is really diverse and all over the place, and we've got the movie music aspects and jazz and everything is in there. But it was the, the, the whole idea of the album was about, um, kind of a mirror of American culture, so.
2: Well, and Debbie, the origin stories of those two songs that I mentioned in particular from that album are pretty crazy, you know, fateful, really, right? With the tide is high, somebody just gives you a, a compilation tape or something. It's, I mean, this song had been around for forever.
0: 67, yeah. I think. It was an
1: album. Yeah, an album. Vivian Goldman, the British, UK writer, great writer
2: but even apparently a version of it goes back to the thirties, right? Like there's,
1: no, I don't know that that's, that's no, I think that sounds like fake news, but okay, I, uh, okay. as, far, as far as I know, the original is, you know, uh, Holt the and, the, I think, yeah. and the paragons, paragons and Holt, and 67, uh, I guess what's great about it was totally crazy about that song. Is there's a violin on it. And I, defy you to find another reggae track from that period that has a violin on it so all the horn lines all the horn lines are based on the violin line I can't recommend that listening to the original Tide High enough. It's just such a great track. It's it's
2: mind boggling. Sure. Um, yeah. And then with, with Rapture, I mean, just so people remember, this is first number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 to feature rap vocals. First rap video ever broadcast on MTV. Some of the biggest hip hop rap guys that came after say it was the first, it was their introduction to rap. How did you guys get introduced to that kind of Sound.
1: We'd all heard, you know, Rapper's Delight and a few of the early Sugar Hill things. And Freddie took us up to the Bronx and to an event, and that was it. It was just all from there. It was just super exciting and eye-opening. It seemed like a no-brainer to try to deal with something that referenced that. Bad five, Freddie told me everybody's
0: DJ spinning, I said, my, my is it cool. no sure a, right a, a,
2: a kind of surreal Debbie, when you hear you know what what basically to see what rap has become and that some of these people who are were so influenced by, by, your work on that.
0: Oh, uh, Well, it's a, bit, a little bit uh, intimidating, <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, I've never considered myself a real rapper, you know.
1: Rap is like you know, <laughs> probably, it's like almost third generation by now. So a lot of those newer guys are not going off for of what we did with that song. But uh, it's nice to be included and have respect from the community generally there
2: right Debbie one thing I, I wondered and I, I believe you've spoken a little bit about is you know in a lot of the coverage of the of the band there was so much that when you you go back and read it today and it's it's not PC at all by today's standards so much of it is focused on your uh, beauty and sex appeal and all of that and I wonder was it frustrating to have that be so much the focus when you're also doing, working very hard at, at making great music and doing that. And, uh and yet that's almost like an afterthought for a lot of the coverage.
0: Yeah. I, I often thought it was a bit short sighted, but, um, it, it was working. So, you know.
2: <laughs> and I guess, what can you do if that's what.
1: Yeah. It's what working. Were... So, you know, it's like. If, well, if we If we were doing it now. It would have been worse. She you would think worse? Be, yes. She would have been God knows what she would have been up to
2: at this point.
1: A lot more surgery. Yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're saying you would have felt pressure to to do cut something? Do everything. Cosmetic? everything yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. God. Um Chris, when did when and why do you think uh drugs entered the picture and why why is heroin the drug of choice for punk like why was that it seems like is that just because Lou Reed did it uh,
1: yeah no yeah our heroes (laughs) you know you know Burroughs and Lou Reed and all those guys that was definitely part of the thing I mean I you know my friends and me in 1967 all loved that in the middle of all the flower power and peace and love there's this the Velvet Underground album is in there, in the middle of this stuff, singing about angst and death and heroin, right. and <laughs> you know that was there. It was just there, and but but you know, and also alleviated a lot of the pressures and tensions that we were having. Uh, as, again, as I always say, heroin is like a loan consolidation where all your problems become the one problem, which is getting high or or finding, finding more heroin. So I certainly don't recommend it. And now it's, you take your fucking life in your hands if you're trying to do that shit anyway. So it's, it's a different time.
2: Well, and Debbie, you, you've said that you kind of resisted the, like you were totally clean for, for a lot longer than the rest of the group. Right. Like, and then when, I think this is all
0: misconstrued. I actually think it's all, a big jumble and people have taken liberties about you know when i Everything. was working um when i was working for the most part i i didn't do drugs and everybody assumes that you know i was uh, raging and and high as as can be most mostly my drug um taking was you know in in off periods and when i wasn't working and um so you know there It's just all messed up and mixed up.
1: It's. I I smoked weed all the time for all
2: through everything. Which never hurt anyone, right? That's fine.
1: Yeah,
0: Mm, it's hard to say. (laughs) Except for the ones that are extremely paranoid and can't answer the
2: phone. Oh, okay, okay. I
1: I never got like that.
2: That was the Coke. Yeah. Well, so... Do you think though? Uh, what, you never did I, drugs yourself? Oh, I didn't say that, but I mean, not heroin, but I, I <laughs> uh, but let me, let me ask you guys do you, cause the fact, Chris, when you got so sick that, you know, you guys had to basically take, oh your, yeah, I, your had, break. I had, I had
1: completely, I mean, the thing I got was uh, genetically related, you know, but I really had wrecked my immune system from doing hard drugs so that was
2: yeah and i i wondered and i guess you as you as you guys have noted that continued even while you were hospitalized for for months right so yeah yeah but do you think that had that illness not happen would you guys have continued on without the whatever it was, 17 years or hiatus, or would, was that just another thing that was going to, something else would have caused a a breakup at that
1: point? Well, if we had not been doing drugs, probably we wouldn't, we might've kept going a little longer, but we were in such a screwed up, we were getting really bad uh, managerial and financial advice too. So, it's hard. It's hard to say. All this stuff happened simultaneously.
0: Plus, I did three uh, solo albums in that period and tours, and that seems to be completely. Uh, uh, I don't know. And Chris was on those tours too, so, you know, th- those those things are completely overlooked.
2: Well, they shouldn't be because, and I want to ask you about that. You first of all, th- that's when you're billing yourself as. Deborah Harry was that that's just the way to differentiate it from what you guys had done as Blondie or what why why that changed just out of curiosity
0: well I I mean Deborah is my correct name my proper name but I think uh, I was calling the band Dirty Harry (laughs) so that was a lot more fun and uh, you know another sort of name that you know was already in the public domain
2: right right a lot of couples when they break up find it difficult to even look at each other and yet you guys have obviously maintained a a a great friendship and all of this for many years beyond that and i just wonder was that ever not was that ever a question i mean i i know i don't want to see ex-girlfriends or anything was that was how did how do you explain that for you guys that you were able to make it work so nicely
1: Debbie's yeah, a really great person. <laughs> and it's just and we have a lot in common and it's, it's that over, over overrode any uh, you know, feelings we might have had about not being together.
0: I think that you now Chris is a, a great person as well. And I don't know, we enjoyed working together and uh you know, if it wasn't for Chris, Blondie would have never gotten back together. And uh, I probably would have learned to be an acrobat and done (laughs) things that Pink did.
2: (laughs) Well, the fact that you did get back together, I guess it was like, I believe, basically 17 years after the breakup. And Chris, I'd I'd heard Debbie say that she'd been hesitant. Why were you kind of more gung ho about doing it? And obviously it worked out beautifully with No Exit and, and the song Maria went so so big in particular, but why, uh, why did you think it was a good idea?
1: I, I met a guy and he just, you know, he was in the business and he said, listen, if you don't do this now, you're never going to do it. And I always had it in the back of my mind about reforming, of course. So it just, I said, okay, well, fuck it. Let's see what happens.
0: Yeah. And the, the synchronistic thing about it was that his name was Harry.
2: well and 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 so debbie despite your reluctance you you get on board and once it was once you guys got going was it was it like basically getting back on a butt like was there any uh kind of reacclimation period or it was pretty much just like it had like it had been
1: no i think it was all you know reinvention and you know reforming relationships all kinds of things were going on Uh, entering the digital era, just lots of stuff, you know. Mm.
2: The world had sort of changed. I guess the music scene had sort of changed.
0: Well, one of the things that I I noticed about it when we did that, we sort of had a, you know, one sort of jam session, and uh, I, I realized that we did actually have a sound. And that, to me, was that. I mean, that's the fundamental thing about having a band is that, I mean you got to have a sound. And, um, you know, that that's true to this day, you know, I mean, you can do solo work and and create great, great songs and great music with, with terrific musicians, but bands have to have an identifiable sound.
2: And, and uh, how would you, how would you describe the Blondie sound? I wouldn't. (laughs) See (laughs) what I is it just not possible chris or or you'd rather not
1: we gotta give credit where credit is due and clem is a big you know he has this crazy you know exuberant style let me put it that way yeah. you know. The,
0: well chris uh, has a chris has a very unique way of playing guitar he uses uh, finger picks and yeah, um, finger picks yes he he has a very very beautiful way of playing and 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 you know filling areas and and you know doing solos and and his songwriting is uh is uh, totally you know influential to to the way the blonde sounds uh the you know the band sounds
2: well so here we are just over now 40 years since the initial period came to an end for the band and as one article I recently came across noted, you guys have now been back together for more than three yeah. times as long as you were originally together, yeah. which is kind of incredible. But I wonder um, with this, with this new box set looking at those first eight years, just again, totally, I've never seen anything like it. It's the, it's as, it's a collector's item just to look at. Uh, but what led to, This decision to revisit those first eight years and put this beautiful package together
1: just just having all the tapes will be mainly we did the last album pollinator at a place called the magic shop in manhattan which is where bowie did black star and uh they did the old brother or art soundtrack out of there and just like a lot of amazing music came out of there and it was closing we were the last band in there and steve rosenthal the guy who owned the place also had a digitizing service that he did you know um baking tapes i don't know you know, people know the process you have to old tapes you have to f- actually fucking heat them <laughs> in a, in, a, in an oven so the <laughs> oxide doesn't fall off when you're playing them you know and then you can only play it once or twice after that. It's long long story. So I had this garage full of tapes, and that got turned over to Steve's company. And not a barn,
2: for the record. Not a barn. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's
1: doing it.
0: The, was, it you know, wasn't a barn, but it looked like a barn. <laughs> yeah.
1: But it was, it was like heated It wasn't right. that. it was just sealed. <laughs> barn to me is like open flats and right. animals walking around. Right. But, you know, yeah. the media, media is like playing the telephone game, you know, where you whisper in somebody's ear yeah. and then hopefully five people later, you're going to see what you came up with. <laughs> that's how it works.
2: Yeah. Well, um, Debbie, when you look at this set and see how much just you guys packed into those first eight years, I mean, I know you lived it. I know you know it factually, but to kind of see a physical embodiment of that, can you kind of, can you believe that was, that was a lot of great work in a rather relatively short period of time?
0: Uh, You know, I I always uh, beat myself up a little bit and think we didn't do enough or I didn't do enough. So, You know, there's a mania. There's a certain amount of mania. I think um Chris has a better better uh I don't know grasp on that. You know, he he always said, you know, that we spent too much time on the road that we should spend more time, you know, writing and, you know, being in the studio. And uh, you know, that in, in the long run, that probably would have suited us a, a lot better. But You would have been uh, happier. Well, yeah, but you know, it's sort of, the uh, I don't know. What do, I don't really know anything.
1: <laughs> I always just, <laughs> I really love recording, and I would always go out of my way to have a tape recorder or a fancy tape recorder, which at that time was a four-track t I would, you know, borrow them, whatever. Eventually I was able to afford one. Uh, I had an eight track TAC later on, all that stuff in, you know, in my apartments. So I just love, like the process, you know, I think, I mean, the Beatles were kind of responsible for that. Cause I, I appreciated the difference between the Beatles heavy studio albums and like what, what's the last album, you know, like uh, the Abbey road album, which is very raw by comparison, you know, And just that kind of stuff formed my music view, you know, uh, lots of stuff. I mean, I could go on and on about recording, but I always always enjoyed the process.
2: Well, with our uh, last two minutes, if it's okay, I'd like to just ask the first thing that comes to your mind about five kind of big picture things. First of all, what is the main reason, if you had to sum it up in a sentence or whatever, why do multiple generations now from kids today to people who are members of AARP still respond. Why do they respond to Blondie music?
1: Because it doesn't sound dated. It doesn't have like those certain 80s synth sounds that you hear, you know, you know, some things, you know exactly what period they were recorded in. And we were really lucky with Mike that he made these timeless sonic pieces. With us, you know, I mean, my Sharona, which Mike produced, doesn't sound dated. It could be from any goddamn period of rock music, you know.
2: Right. How are there have been these music jukebox musicals on Broadway biopics lately with whether it's Elton on film with Elton John or Queen or whoever? I am sure that people have been smart enough to come to you guys and ask about that. Is there any chance we will see something like that either on the stage or the screen.
0: Well, I don't know, but you know, I, I'm taking bets if anybody wants to <laughs> get in on it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it would be amazing. There, you guys are, have...
1: there, are, there are three good music movies.
2: Okay. <laughs> which ones, which ones
1: <laughs> performance with Mick Jagger. Okay. Inside, Inside Lewin Davis. Yes. The Coen brothers and Spinal Tap. And that's it. The rest of them are bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's,
0: not, that's not true. Well, I think that the thing is, is that, you know, those are somehow they're not predictable. So I, I think that, you know, that's that's one of the important things, you know, and and we we like that. We like surprises. And our lives today, because of, you know, the Internet and all this communication are, you know, there's not a really a lot of things that are surprises. So, you know, if you can come up with something creative that's a bit of a surprise, you know, people are really charmed by that. They really like entertainment, you know.
2: Interesting. Okay, so looking at the music scene today, where or in whom do you most see your influence?
1: God, I. In the in the modern music scene. Yeah. Oh, gee, I, I I love reggaeton. And Cumbia and modern Latin music. Uh, I don't know. Bad Bunny. I really like Bad Bunny. Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I really, I love the little Naz stuff too. Yeah? But, yeah, I mean, there's so, there's a tremendous amount of stuff. And there's all these great, you know, groups that are in the punk genre, you know, it's like Amel and the Sniffers and Surfboard and the Black right, Lips right, right. and all these guys are very focused in a kind of punk genre, which is, and they're doing great mm-hmm. stuff.
2: Right. And Debbie, I mean, there's, there's countless people who say without you, there's no Madonna, there's no Lady Gaga, there's no, you know, you could go on and on. Do you kind of, what do you make of it when you see them, in action what you know people like that
0: <laughs> I know I uh, you know I, I like some of their music and uh, uh, my god you know it's a tough business I have to you know give them credit for you know their huge success and you know their drive and uh, their talent you know it's uh it's a big tough world out there
1: I mean, I, I really thought, I don't know if you noticed, I don't know if anybody noticed except me, but the walk-on music in the World Cup when they would come out with the little kids just sounded like Bad Romance. And I still think Gaga should sue FIFA. Because, <laughs> you know I, don't know, I don't know what that song was, but it was, it's, you know, that's bad my romance, take. Bad Romance, yeah. Right.
2: All right, last two. First of all, if you ever find yourself down on the Bowery, right, where c b g v s was or near Union Square uh, where Max's Kansas City was or a lot of these places which are now most of them are are gone with little evidence that they were ever there what is that like for you to know you know it's is it like seeing a ghost in a way
1: okay I just today passed by our old Valerie Haunts our old loft building, and it just blows my mind. There's a giant Whole Foods across the street. (laughs) (laughs) It's the funniest fucking thing to me, you know. Because there was, you know, I can't. It just it cracks me up. What can I say?
2: Is there is it bittersweet, Debbie? I mean, so much great stuff came out of there, and then you realize in a matter of like whatever forty years. It's just I will gone. say
0: that the last night that we played there, I was moved, you know, because, you know, I had some some good memories and some bad memories and, you know, um, but uh, basically being a New Yorker and knowing how fast things come and go, uh, I'm I surprised that it lasted as long as it did. I mean, we played in a lot of little holes around the city. You know, this place, Mothers, that, that was across from uh, the Squat Theater. And the Squat Theater was kind of great. You know, there were all these places, Monty Python's, um, that place on uh, Broadway. And uh, I don't know about... Brand, branding,
1: Brandy's too. The Monty Python,
0: Monty Python. Yeah. The Mushroom. Yeah. And we played in a lot of little clubs. They come and they go. CBGBs, uh, lasted a long time. And Max's had, um, you know, two incarnations, you know, it had a firm incarnation in the sixties where it was a huge hangout for the art scene and, and music scene as well. And, uh, then again, it started up again in, I guess, what was the end of the seventies, middle, mid to late seventies. So, you know, I mean, places come and go, they reincarnate, uh, You know, New York is like that. Big cities are like that. You know, they move fast. I I used to always remark that, you know, you go away for six weeks on the tour and you come back and you can't get a decent hamburger.
2: (laughs) Well, very last question. I'd like to ask each of you to just weigh in. If that night had not happened where Chris happened to be there in the audience at the Stilettos where Debbie's performing, uh, how differently do you think your lives might have unfolded what would have what if you had to theorize I know it's there's no way to know but uh Chris if you want to go first just what do you where do you how do you think things would have unfolded
1: oh man I don't know at first I think we probably would have hooked up anyway because it was such a small incestuous scene you know I think we would have run into each other at some point regardless but I you know I auditioned for television I used to for the Neon Boys, which was the early incarnation of television, um, Richard Hell says I was too nice, so <laughs> they, they didn't really consider me. But I mean, that stuff was going on. I would have, I probably would have found myself in some situation like that. Now that I watch a lot of prece- police procedural shit on netflix i <laughs> often think that i would like to have been a detective right. but i was too i was too much of a peace person back then to seriously <laughs> consider that so that's
2: great and debbie uh you you go up there with the stilettos and you don't and chris wasn't out there in the audience what would have what would have transpired after that
0: i you know i really can't say um i really i really can't say i was uh you know very smitten with the idea of, you know, doing music and doing doing rock. I I think that, you know, I would have, you know, evolved somehow on the scene or revolved and, you know, made my way around, you know. I, I was hanging out. I was also, you know, I had, I was working, uh, you know, so um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I yeah, I really can't say. Maybe I would have gone into real estate and and been much happier.
2: <laughs> well, I we can all be thankful that you guys did me, and thank you for the music, and thank you for this box set. is unbelievable. People should go out and get it. And uh, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it, guys.
1: Thanks,
0: Scott. Thank you. That was fun.
2: Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty,